Hello, and welcome to the May edition of the Cinetopia Radio Show and Podcast. I'm Amanda, your host. On this month's episode, we review four new release films, The Eight Mountains, directed by Felix van Groningen and Charlotte Vandermeesh, currently out in cinemas. Plan 75, directed by Chia Hayakawa, a Japanese film also out in cinemas at the moment. Then Master Gardener, Paul Schrader's next film, out on the 26th of May. Finally, Brainwashed, Sex Camera Power, a film by Nina Menkes. Stay tuned. So we're here with some of our regulars. Claire, it's been a while, but good to have you back. <laughs> I feel, yeah, I feel like my appearances are all the more sporadic, but make a dramatic re-entrance, which is what I'm doing today. Hello, everyone. And we're back with Gary as well. So Gary is back this month as well. How are yeah, you, Gary? Thanks. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, I think I, I missed a month last month. So uh, yeah, good to be back. Great. And uh, just a reminder that Cenotopia uh, is working very hard on its uh, outdoor film screening for the end of May. So that's in a week and a half from when this uh, airs, um, then we'll be up in Banff and Port Soy, two really gorgeous towns in Aberdeenshire, in the northeast coast of Scotland, celebrating the uh, 40th anniversary of the film Local Hero, uh, which was filmed in the area alongside other places. And we're actually bringing some of the cast and crew up as well and um, showing a whole bunch of other films, such as a few documentaries, The Oil Machine, which we uh, reviewed on the show here, um, Ride the Wave, which, uh, you know, had a, a big tour around the UK and Scotland last year, uh, but all fitting for the themes and the locations where we're showing all these films right alongside the beach. So it'll be a really, really wonderful event. If you can get up there, do, uh, or tell your friends who live in the area. Um, and it's at cinescapes.co.uk. And that is our Local Hero Weekender. All right, so the first film we're going to review is The Eight Mountains. And Clara, uh, you went and saw that the other day. It's currently out in the UK cinemas. Tell us a little bit about this film. Yeah, so um, I went and viewed The Eight Mountains at the Cameo at a Discover screening um, and it was very well attended, which is always nice to see and feel a very a good mix of young and old sort of outdoorsy type people, um, which, is quite, which is quite comforting. I'm still enjoying being back in the cinema, even though it's been like a couple of years. I'm still feeling a renewed sense of happiness <laughs> when I'm just in the cinema experiencing things with people. So, uh, yeah, it was lovely. But anyway, um, The Eight Mountains. So uh, the film follows the intertwining and tumultuous fates and friendships of two boys growing up in an old um, Italian village in the mountains. Um, it's vast, it's epic, and it's delicate but raw at the same time. And it's a, a meditation on love and the indelible mark that the people and places close to us have on the trajectory and riches of our lives. Um, it was created by Belgian filmmakers Felix van Groningen and Charlotte van der Meersch. Van der Meersch adapted uh, from the award-winning novel by Italian author Paolo Cognetti. Um, it's, as I say, it's a very vast film. So the story begins in 1984 with the kindling of a really unlikely but um, seemingly inevitable deep friendship between two boys, Pietro, a middle-class boy from Turin, and Bruno from a long line of mountain men or Montanaros, who are, who age 12 is caring for cattle and running wild 
in the forests and valleys of northern Italy. Um, as the population of the mountain towns dwindles dangerously close to extinction, these two boys, families just remain connected to the town and then they end up um, spending summers together and just growing increasingly close as if they're the last two boys on earth rather than just in the village. And um, they form a really fast bond that children, only children it seems can, can that fast. Uh, and then the film subsequently follows the two boys as they become men. Pietro becoming estranged from his father in the mountain town where he and Bruno once spent their summers and Bruno becoming entrenched in the rural farming life handed down to him by his distant and alcoholic father. Um, so the two are brought together again later in life and bond again over the restoration of a dilapidated cabin high in the mountains, which Bruno had promised Pietro's father he would do. Uh, the two having grown close, Bruno becoming a surrogate son almost. Um, so yeah, so it's a very epic film which masterfully handles transcendentalist cosmic subjects like the cyclical nature of time, life, creation and death, uh, but it weaves them into the incredibly convincing and captivating relationship and lives of these two people that follows. And it doesn't ever veer into anything kind of trite or mawkish or uh, never goes into sort of tree of life territory. It manages to weave these concepts in very subtly into a very adventure laden film, <laughs> which I enjoyed very much. Um, so yeah, it manages to capture these, uh, these great high concepts without ever, ever being tedious or trite or mawkish or pretentious. Um, and the vast scale of it is very impressive. So covering not just one, but two or three lives that are connected and, and fractured and then sutured and then celebrated all over again for boyhood to, to the end of their lives is just kind of miraculous. <laughs> um, yeah, I could go on, shall I? <laughs> uh, you, you. Uh, you put it very brilliantly and eloquently, uh, Clara. Um, but you've, you've, uh, you've, yeah, you've covered it uh, very well. I can kind of uh, reiterate some of your points. Um, I was, um, yeah, I, I watched this one at home, and I kind of wish that well, mm -hmm. I've still got the chance to see it on the big screen. And I think I'm, I think I'd be tempted to do that because of the vastness and the like, the epic scale of it, because mm -hmm. it's, it's two and a half hours long. And it manages to feel kind of grandiose. It's told on a big, big scale. It's got big themes, but then it's also quite an intimate story between these two boys who grow to be uh, really good friends. Um, and yeah, I was just uh, engrossed in their story throughout. Um, it feels like it, it doesn't feel like uh, almost three hour movie. I think it's beautifully shot it's quite it's poetic the way that the story kind of um kind of changes and it subverts expectations a little bit as it as it moves through the story um yeah there's some like I like how it, how it toys with like that idea of like when you're a when you're a kid things might seem bigger and more expansive and then as you become older there's a scene where they return to a lake where they had been as kids and they say one of them I think it's um Pietro mentions that he remembers it being a lot bigger. And I think it's um, interesting how it plays with that thing of um, like Bruno being a man of the mountain and Pietro being a, a man of the world, that he kind of goes away to um, far off places and returns back. So it's like that idea of scale and the borders that you can place on your own life. Uh, I found that aspect of it really interesting. Um, what do you think about Amanda? I liked it. I liked it a lot. I think I agree with you, Gary, that it would have probably been a film to see in the theater. And mm -hmm. I think quite a 
friends of mine who probably went to the same screening as you did, Clara, or mm-hmm. around that time said that was, you know, if you get a chance, please go and check it out in the theater, which I didn't. I, I saw it at home as well. Um, but I think I might have liked it less than the two of you. Uh, <laughs> not that I disliked it. And I think it's one of these films that are probably going to be quite popular. And it's probably going to be quite popular with a like a fairly broad audience because uh, it is there's I mean it is quite it's quite emotional in a lot of places it's it's very beautiful it's stunning you know just for the landscapes alone and you know the cinematography and everything it's an exceptional film I think it just was a little light for me on like plot and story you know brutal <laughs> <laughs> just it was and I mean it's fine It. And the pacing was fine for me. I didn't didn't bother me that it was that long. Like I, you know, I wouldn't. I yeah, you know, I I often critique the long, you know, Scorsese net, you know, <laughs> Netflix films and whatnot. Um, but that didn't bother me either. I just didn't, you know, it, I I felt it was slightly light. You know, <laughs> I have so much to say about the opposite. How I thought it was very, it had a lot of depth because okay. I was like, I think I think I do in my defense. I think I, I've come to I, it. It came to me a very strange time in my life. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I think it sort of hit home because, like, uh, it deals with um, like the pressures and aspirations and mythologies through which people uh, create relationships in their lives and how things your fate is sort of sealed and also the sublimeness and actually comforting harsh neutrality of nature. And I'm sort of, sort of thinking about my life and thinking about just going off into the wild for a long time. So I think that might be why there's a connection. But it's just, and also the fact that it considers where and who and when we begin to age um, and ponder our existence, what we're drawn back to and the sort of elemental things that form us as complex people. Um, and it's about evolution as well. So I'm kind of, I guess maybe that's why it's talking to me at this moment in time. But also I think I like it because, um, yeah, because it has a sort of a wider, a broader scope, sort of looking at the rest of the world and a different um, spiritualities and religions and it kind of takes them into account subtly, which I like. So yeah, the title doesn't refer to any mountain chain in Italy. It um, refers to the Himalayan mountain chain, um, which is important because those mountains have a really deep religious significance in both Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism, and Hinduism. And the film sort of deals with a lot of those existential concepts raised by those faiths. Um, and then also the mountains, the Italian mountains become sort of a religious, um, take on a religious element tinge to them um, because they're so formative. But yeah, I, I, like, I like that element to it, but yeah. It deals with death and life, Amanda. How could you say it's light? I mean, there's so much going. I don't get that. So much going. <laughs> but yeah, I do think if I'd seen it in a different year or a different month, I might be less impressed. But yeah. For the cinematography itself, I would say go to the cinema and watch it because people were in awe as they left, just having been transported for a couple of hours. So. Yeah, and I also liked the aspect ratio as well, which again, I don't know, you know, how it depends on how it's screened and in what case, but the four by three, you know, aspect ratio, I think really ha- like oftentimes mm. we think of it as a, it's a, a film about mountains should be very widescreen, but like, I think it actually had a very great impact. I can imagine in the cinema that it would have, a, you know, a great impact as well with, um, with the four by three, mm. uh, you know, uh, aspect ratio. So again, positive things overall, uh, just not, wasn't my most favorite film, but you know. 
and it critiques machismo and like being a radical libertarian traditionalist which i enjoyed as well so just good, <laughs> good lessons to be learned <laughs> i also just want to uh, give a, a quick mention to the um to the soundtrack as well i enjoyed yeah. the, the songs that were uh, peppered throughout it by i looked it up it's a swedish singer songwriter called daniel norgren so yeah. uh, i'd be quite interested to have a look at uh, check out some of his work and i think it's his latest album that's kind of being used as the as the soundtrack um yeah i think i'm i'm definitely leaning towards uh, your feelings on it clara more more than amanda's <laughs> i think it also says something along um got something to say about like um friendship as a as a theme and like trying to hold up trying to like how a friendship changes through your through your life and like the importance of like um adult friendships and how you can like be apart from a friend for a long time and then pick up that dynamic where you where you left it off again because there's without going into too much there's parts of Bruno and Pietro's lives where they're not they don't see each other very often and um yeah I think that's that's interesting it's kind of like um I suppose it's like a bit of a uh antidote to like the kind of toxic masculinity friendship of Banshees of Inisherin, which also had like <laughs> vast landscapes, and uh, how that kind of looked at the, the the looked at a friendship between two men in a very different way. Um, so it kind of like made me think of that. But I think this one is a lot uh, it's a lot lighter, but not in a not in a bad way of being light. Mm. Um, but yeah, a film also reminded me of a little bit. It's a bit of a throwback, and it's probably not one that would be easily compared with it. Was uh, the Place Beyond the Pines? It's a film from about 10 years ago mm. uh, with Ryan Gosling and Bradley Cooper. And it was all about fathers and sons and how the decisions of the fathers run through into the sons' lives. And um, yeah, kind of like, I think the film does something quite interesting with that as well. Yeah, definitely the parenthood element is, yeah, parenthood tying into the cyclical nature of life <laughs> and that we're constantly just one begets the other and things just have an avalanche kind of impact. Like a ripple, <laughs> um, yeah. It just it just beautifully packages up the relationships between the parent and child because of its vastness and in terms of scale and time and space, and how the relationships with one's parents inevitably just impact the life of the children that you raise for better or for worse. And it just lays bare how nurturing a deep and meaningful relationship with a friend or with your father or other um, can make life either beautiful and rich or make it empty and painful and full of yearning. <laughs> um, and it's so it's I I always think it's a good reminder to have it's and as I say it's not trite. Or mockish, and I'm and I'm a very skeptical person. So, for what that's worth, I would say go see it. <laughs> I also would disagree with you, Gary. I, although I did really like, uh, I liked the music, as in I would like to maybe listen. To <laughs> but I didn't like it in the film. It's I, maybe it's like the you know I know it's Swedish folk singer, but singing in English, and some of the lyrics as it, they were coming in just felt like too on point like too literal <laughs> and it drove me nuts so I was starting to like shazam it a little bit you know because well, obviously you'll probably hear it in the you know the in the the radio yeah, version of this um and then it gets to like when he starts to sing and I'm like oh come on so maybe that also is one aspect that was like pulling me <laughs> out a bit um <laughs> yeah I mean, better than banshees though everyone knows i was like the only person who didn't love 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 banshees um better than banshees but just not my 
my most favorite film. Controversy, left, right, and center. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have one dissenting vote sometimes, you know, (laughs) on the big hits. Um, all right, but that is uh, the eight mountains. Oh, I had a note, but this is kind of um, it. May... <laughs> I wrote in my scrawled in my notebook. It says, "At times, gave straight alpinists Brokeback Mountain." Well, yeah, <laughs> there was a Brokeback Mountain element to this. I also there, there was Platonic a... Brokeback Mountain. Yeah, um, and then also I like it. It felt like this. Italian miniseries called The Best of Youth I saw like that I loved like there was elements of just this episodic sort of covering boyhood a bit you know there's lots of different things I connected with that that reminded me of the films I'd seen before Mm. so maybe then I was just waiting for it to become Mm. its own but um I think most uh, most certainly you two really like it I know quite a lot of people who loved it it's a gorgeous film it's worth seeing in the cinema as well and it's the eight mountains and it's out in um, the UK. So check it out. So um, our next film we're going to review also currently out in cinemas right now in the UK and beyond. It's also on Curzon Home. Um, it's Plan 75. And Clara, tell us about that film. Sure. Uh, So Plan 75 is set against the real sociological context of Japan's burgeoning negative population. Um, The film imagines a culture where resentment for the elderly has ruptured into increasingly common acts of terrorism and violence against them. The government then passes a bill named Plan 75, a program which allows and uh, even incentivizes citizens over 75 to sign up for a voluntary suicide, pushing the film safely into dystopian, a very dark dystopian territory. Although, as uh, director Chi Hayakawa has stated, it's too real to be sci-fi, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I was discussing this in the in the pub the other night with a couple of people um, about the line between sci-fi and dystopia and um, satire, basically. And this definitely sits on that sort of uncomfortable, sort of uncanny valley um, where it's very much real and very much possible, and ev- maybe even here. Um, so in reality, as I say, Japan is suffering both economically and sociopolitically from its being um, a world leader with regards to life expectancy, with women living to like 87 and men to like 80, um, and having low birth rates and its reluctance to allow um, easy channels for immigration and such, among other economic reasons. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a bad problem that uh, the Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, um, said in 2021, he publicly called Japan's aging population and low birth rate an urgent threat to Japan's future, uh, going so far as to say earlier this year, the country just won't be able to function in the coming decades. Um, so it's really uh, a doomsday situation um, in the eyes of a lot of Japanese people and, and got the government. Um, he's also commissioned reports addressing the economic Im- impact or shrinkonomics at play in Japan. And he's promised government intervention into the issue, pledging to create a government agency to tackle the problem. So um, against this really real context and the wider global context of assisted dying being uh, being legalized through certain legal channels like in Switzerland with Dignitas, uh, the premise doesn't really seem too far-fetched. And uh, when I initially looked up Plan 75 on Google, the top suggested search was, is Plan 75 a real thing? <laughs> um, so it seems pretty plausible to people. Um, but yeah, uh, but the Japanese prime minister said um, that he'll be focusing more on policies regarding children and child rearing uh, rather than killing off the elderly, um, which in my mind is kind of as ripe a source of dystopian horror, if not more so, <laughs> than the film, uh, really. 
Um, but yeah, so the director, um, as I said, Chi Hayakawa, cites increasing pressure from the media and government to be self-sufficient and eschew welfare as an inspiration for the film, um, saying that there is uh, that those two pillars uh, are manufacturing a sense of, quote, shame amongst those who need welfare, meaning those who need it don't apply for it, which makes their lives even more desperate, but it also infects the younger generations, building up a huge resentment towards all older people. She goes on to say, it means that we have to take care of ourselves instead of relying on the government or being a burden to society, and it's created a kind of hatred towards the elderly and the weak. Um, and that's where the film picks off. So uh, the main character, Michi uh, Kakutani, the 78-year-old woman played by Chieko Baisho, who's at the heart of the film, um, she embodies this desperation as we see her caught in this social bear trap of not wanting to be a burden to society or people around her that she's formed relationships with, but desperately wanting to survive and, and to live. Um, the film ends up being much as much about the harsh realities of aging and surviving as an increasingly marginalized and under, undervalued and lonely person as it is about the just dystopian possibilities and creeping horror that it deals with. Um, it deals with a lot of moral quandaries, which inevitably rear their head as people working within the government system, helping to run the program, question their ethics and the value of the people they interact with. Um, it ends up being very tender though, I think, and just sort of addresses loneliness and the poor quality of life among the elderly and the lack of community connection rather than exclusively and intensely dealing with the horror of mass state-sponsored suicide. Although there is Obviously, a touch of that. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, I know. Sorry, I was just gonna um, uh, say I was listening to something the other day that was kind of along the lines of the same idea that you were talking about, Clara, where mm -hmm. things are like um, not quite sci-fi, but they're like mm -hmm. blending the lines between sci-fi and um, and dystopia. Mm -hmm. And the person on the podcast I was listening to described something else, not this, but this applies as a near-fi which <laughs> I quite like that as a as a genre as a subgenre maybe and I think that definitely applies to to this film because it kind of like when you read the synopsis you think it's going to be a kind of black mirror like utopia mm. type of thing but then like you see it that it's a lot more understated and it's a lot more tender but I actually think go back to what Amanda said about eight mountains I kind of felt like this one was maybe too light agree this felt Feel, feels so I know that it, it's based on a short uh, I think it it began as a short that was part of a bigger film in 2018 that was like a collection of short films and then this was a segment of it that's been expanded mm. now into a feature and I just think that maybe that there's not quite enough meat on the bones to like flesh out into a feature and it's not to say that there couldn't be I think it's an interesting premise but I just felt like it's a little bit too ponderous in places and I, I, I was struggling to be invested I, I think the the uh, the character of Mishi um is is the strongest part of the film I think the like the guy who was working for Plan 75 and then like the 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 Filipino character I, I was just struggling to become engaged in their stories and I don't know mm -hmm. I, it just wasn't it got to the stage I was looked at my watch far too many times for a film <laughs> that was under under two hours um it's not to say that like I hated it I think it was an interesting idea and it was well made but yeah I don't know Amanda what did what did you think of this well yeah and I like your near fi I um I I think what made this film work is the way it was shot the tone the, mm -hmm. the fact that it felt real and yet um it was quite scary and dystopian and you know like I mean the premise was it does not you know doesn't exist thank goodness 
Um, and I do, I think specifically what you said, um, Clara, around the, you know, around the sort of creating the, you know, like a, a real life sort of depiction of what it is to be an older person, the, so, the, the social isolation that one, you know, feels the sort of the issues of employment and, you know, mm. and, and all of these sort of things that come through. I think that was really powerful and lots of different parts of this film. I do agree with you both that um, it was slow. And I mean, <laughs> I thought Eight Mountains was as well, or <laughs> Light. But I do think the main character, Mitchie, was by far my favorite. I was really rooting for um, that character throughout the whole thing and was po really powerful. I thought really well acted, really interesting. I think con conceptually, I think it's an, a really interesting and important film and, and something to talk about in terms of the way um, you know, be, the bureaucratic sort of way of, you know, dealing with, you know, these kinds of things, as you were saying that, you know, people are saying, oh, this, you know, population thing is a crisis and and whatnot. And um, I thought I brought up stuff that was very, very depressing, you know, it was <laughs> easy film to watch. It was quite, you know, it was, it was, it was quite heart wrenching. Um, but it was, you know, it, it was an interesting film. And I think the way it was filmed and the way that the director took the film, you know, like the the topic and the idea around something sci-fi, and shot it that in that very sort of realistic observational way was was very interesting. But I do agree with you both. It 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 was a uh, it dragged a bit, and yeah, in quite a few places. I think it, yeah, I think it can have been a, a, as it's interesting that it came from a short film. I didn't know that that doesn't make a lot of sense. It does feel like they sort of came up with a couple of extra characters to flesh out the time timeline, but it would have been stronger probably if it just stuck with that one um, character, the older lady who was more captivating. But I think it's one of those films for me that um, at the time, yeah, it did drag a little bit, but then it had a really good payoff at the end. And then also one of those films that it, it, in hindsight, the more I thought about it, the more I think I've got from it in reflection. So. Um, in in the sense that it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was heavy handed enough with like with um pushing the the limits of the of the potential of the dystopian themes brought up. When I've considered it in depth, where I think the real kind of dystopian horror lies is that it is sort of an imperceptive clinical and bureaucratic handling of the program and the disconnect and the distance engendered by the technology and the bureaucracy and the corporate procedure, which is kind of, which is so normal to us. And so that it does just pass over and it does seem like boring to actually watch it play out. And um, and even even when the government is saying, um, it, well, in, in the film, the government um, expresses through disembodied like radio announcements and TV um, appearances that, the program is a great success um, and they uh, explained how they, they couch it in terms of yen profit and that kind of slips by you but then obviously that's very chilling and very um, realistic but I, I find it really interesting as well that it raises some really salient and as I say more subtle in hindsight chilling questions about modern society's ability to deal with death and face it head on <laughs> and our inability to invite it into our homes and discussions with like any, with any reverence or due diligence and sort of respect and our proclivity to outsource dealing with it and we much rather detach and distance ourselves from it as much as possible and leave it to the government or a faceless organization if that's possible and um i think that in hindsight is the subtle power and the melancholy of the film is that it shows the really slow and subtle realizations which can wash over you as you realize that you are detached ethically and physically from all these things happening around you is the cool sort of clinical dramamine drip of authoritarianism and dystopia creep in um but does it yeah so I think it's one of those sort of like a slow burner for me but 
which has had more of an impact on me than I initially realized as I'm just realizing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say that same. I've just, I just took it in. So, um, but mm. I, I feel the same thing will happen and we'll have, I'll, I'll feel the resonance in this film more and longer than I will with, you know, the previous mm. film we talked about in terms of aging and, you know, and cycles of life and, and whatnot. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think it's, it's made me think a lot about various things as well. And I think it's, it's a, it's a very good, it's a very accomplished film that I definitely think it's accomplished film. I do think we, we've said our little caveats about, you know, maybe <laughs> places to improve. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And it does actually make me want to watch the other short films that were part of the film that this was based on. So the film is called 10 Years Japan, which mm. five filmmakers um, creating a vision of how they might see Japan in 10 years time. And I think, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't know that much. I've not seen lots of Japanese cinema and I don't know loads about Japanese culture, but there's enough in this film that it kind of like intrigues me into like, um, the idea that I don't know. I, I was reading that like how older people could see uh, taking the money and dying as being like service to their country in a kind of sacrificial way. And I think that's quite an interesting idea. So it'd be yeah, it's definitely it's, it's um, piqued my interest, and I'm interested to check out the the rest of those films. Great. So um, we can check out that. I think sometimes that's on movie. I was just checking out and uh, uh, also check out uh, Plan 75 if you'd like. It's in the um, it's in uh, cinemas right now. Master Gardner. Ready for this one. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, you got this one? Uh yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so uh okay, so Master Gardener is the latest film from uh the writer and director Paul Schrader. Um it stars Joel Edgerton, who plays a gardener called Narvel Roth, and he works for uh he works at a estate in Louisiana. Uh, for his boss, played by Sigourney Weaver, who's called Mrs. Uh, Haverhill. And um, he's very dedicated to his work and his craft. He's very meticulous about creating the displays and making this uh, pristine estate to keep, to keep on top of his work. Um, things change when uh, his boss's niece uh, comes to stay and she, she asks Narvel to to take her niece on as his apprentice. Um, and he, he develops a, a, a friendship with the niece and things develop from there. So that's the, the synopsis. <laughs> and I, um, send, I know that like Paul Schrader, this, this is seen as being the third and final film from like this kind of contemporary trilogy of like um, male redemption. Uh, so I don't know if, listeners might have watched first performed with uh, uh, Ethan Hawke and then there was one a couple of years ago called The Card Counter with Oscar Isaac so this is kind of like the third piece in that in that trilogy and it's I think for people who like Paul Schrader films and I do and I get a sense that I might be in the minority um, but I do like Paul Schrader's films and this one isn't really going to win people over to the way that he tells his stories because he has been telling similar stories throughout his whole career even going back to 
Taxi Driver, which he wrote in the seventies, and it's it's always there's always a, a theme of um, redemption, or like they would call his protagonists like, God's lonely men. Um, so um, I'm interested to hear what hear what you guys think about the film, Clara. Right. I mean, I can't swear. I still can't swear, can I? Um, ideally, I, no. Okay. Well, what the fudge was this movie? <laughs> what the? I, I. Good actors can make bad movies. We need to remember this time and time again. That just because you have a really excellent actor does not mean you're guaranteed to have a really brilliant film. Um, I, I just felt like as I was watching it, the Sigourney. I was feel like I was watching Sigourney Weaver's first audition reel, following like a bad fall. And then, and she just like, which has just eradicated her life's acting experience completely. And I'm like, sorry to say it, but it just was like, absolutely. Um, it was really baffling. I feel, I, as I was listening, as I was watching it, I just thought like chat GBT wrote the script. Chat GTP has written the script, not Paul Schrader. This is someone else. He's an imposter. It, <laughs> it, felt, it felt absolutely baffling. To quote, I thought you had a green thumb. I didn't know it was a green middle finger. <laughs> I was yeah that was an interesting quote yes to be fair it made me laugh like but at it and bitterly because I was resentful that I was watching it that's that's how it made me feel like, honestly if it was like yeah if chat GDP, GPT crossed with American History X and then crossed with Gardner's World and also a generic porno if that was the input search that you put into chat GPT that was what script you would get out is this movie <laughs> um just uh, the quote that I've got written down here is that he said that um, seeds of love grow like the seeds of hate, which I think is uh, uh, speaks to like the so the deep of the character. Yeah, and I, like I'll I'll admit, like it's definitely not uh, like subtlety is not Paul Schrader's uh, strong suit, and it hasn't been um, for a while. But I don't know. I I think that there's some. I I like the film, but. I know that Paul, that his films are an acquired taste. Um, I don't know. I, I know that like you can have a good performance in a film that like might not be a great film. I thought Joel Edgerton was was really good in this. He's interesting. Like that is kind of like brooding protagonist, and he kind of it's almost like um, I don't know. He, he's like the new mold for like a Paul Schrader protagonist. And I don't know. There's there's only slight differences from each. What like if you if you look back at like the this trilogy as such, um, so he is kind of like doubling down, or in this case, tripling down on the same themes. Um, and yeah, I think if you've if you've seen either of the other two and not liked them, then I would say don't watch this one. But if you did like those ones, then it's more of the same. I just, I've not I've not seen those latest two, um, I, but I have of course seen you know his his previous earlier work, and I mm. am quite obsessed. Um, and we'll put a big shout out for um, uh, you must remember this podcast that goes through uh, the history of Hollywood, but like largely from a female perspective. And there's this whole whole um, series she does on erotic eighties, which um, brings up Schrader a lot. So I you know I'm I'm fascinated to go back in the history of like this you know director's work and you know writer's work um I think this film is I I could not believe what I was watching and I, yeah yeah I was shocked 
that that person's name was attached to this. And mm-hmm. also just the complete concept of taking these really big subject matters in terms of like race and, you know, class and power and drugs and social issues (laughs) and I mean it it made what was the film that won the Oscar a few years ago that everyone was like I can't believe that one and made that look like positively like amazing compared to this Uh, like it was yeah this was so it was just so trite so terrible um I the you know t- taking on these subjects and the way that it ends as well along that side it was actually was just, offensive it was it actually offensive. offensive it's actually fully 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 offensive to, uh, to to black Americans to black people all over the world to women as well screw throw them in as well like it's just absolutely horrible so yeah I know Paul Schrader like he has that he that's his thing everyone defends him and says well look it's a Paul Schrader film it's like of course, yeah, he is he is retracing well-hewn subjects, introverted and troubled male owners on the fringes, struggling to harness their demons and function in society, which is fertile territory. And it could have been, it could have been a very good starting point to deal with the issues of racism, which are brought up in this film. But all that happened was a baffling transition, or three, between a bunch of characters sort of muddling their way through things with completely incomprehensible speech but completely unconvincing and then also and then like an an almost inevitable but still absolutely confusing veering into just like random violence just to finish it off as if like the the last bit of the movie just needed something to spice it up because it was so agonizingly terrible to begin with they're like you know just let's start shooting people like and how is that redemptive how is that a redemption arc that this man decides to go and just shoot up a room full of people whose backgrounds we know nothing about. In, in, in the modern narrative of drug addiction, shooting up people who are just who are high on drugs is not like a good boy, a good a good guy, bad guy kind of classic arc narrative. It was it was so reductive. Like I'm yeah. actually kind of angry thinking about it to be honest, because like because the the subject in America of um, the alt right of of Nazism of racism is is hot and it is real and it is complicated, and to do it like this. It felt pornographic. It really did. It felt just so completely just flippant, and and it, yeah, like I I really can't stress enough how it seemed like Chat GPT wrote this because just like smashing together just like a man like a man who, with a, a checkered racist past and then just making him a gardener, and then suddenly throwing him back into that world again just seems so completely random and it it, it just wasn't explained. None of it was fleshed out. None of it made sense. <laughs> it was it just. I mean, it, it it was offensive. I agree. I think I, I completely agree. I think from the very beginning of that point, you know, that was, but it was also really bad. It was it just was a, bad. It was a bad film. I mean, the narration was like corny was hilarious. As, as anything. It didn't, it didn't make, it didn't make much sense. And I didn't really buy the like, like affection from any of the characters also did she look like any anything like a person who is on drugs or in withdrawal like what kind of person is on withdrawal just like goes straight into like a nine-to-five gardening job and is chirpy and is fine and then suddenly it's like oh a couple of scenes later it's like oh she's actually she's actively using and she's a drug that no there is no no (laughs) this is just this is a sober actress and you can see it like it's not there was there was no effort to make any of these characters actually believable I mean, there was, I mean, just, okay, so there was a bizarre scene where Norval, the gardener, 
decided to rock up to um, his new ingenue um, slash romantic interests neighborhood to try and like noise up some drug dealers that were giving her hassle. And then he gets out of the car in his garden, in his gardening overalls with pruning shears and just struts over to these guys who are just standing on the street corner. And he's, and then he just goes, he just starts threatening them with the gardening, with the his pruning shears. <laughs> snipping them in from their face like with, with this smug look on his face and these guys who are allegedly hardened criminals just stand there looking a bit baffled and also just unconvincingly they don't look like any kind of real person that would be in this scenario and then and then as Norval, tur- Norval turns around to go you know really proud of himself swaggering off back to his car point made these two random guys just shout hey chill proud boy as if they've just like how would they know that what how is this man giving off any kind of alt-right signals there's nothing to go on but that it's just, it's just, it was just, it was honestly just absolutely baffling. Just made no sense, completely detached from reality, but not in a fun way. And was just like aching to be gritty and to be bitter and to be edgy, but it just was like a, a sour glass of milk. It was just, sorry, I'm going to hate listening back to me like ranting about this because I'm completely off piece. <laughs> no, one needs. God, those diary entries though, those, prof- those supposedly profound musings. They were just completely lacking in any kind of tangible profundity or sense of insight into his past, into his character, into his, uh, any of his actual motivations or any kind of, oh God. I mean, maybe you should all watch it. Maybe you should watch it, but like for free if you can. And then just <laughs> enjoy the enjoy I'm not the sure you have to watch it. I think it, I could have, I could have gone not with super. never watching that film ever and been a lot happier of a person. It's one of those things where you're where you're like, I w- I'm never going to get that time back. And I've watched a lot of films and I've not really, I don't really feel like that, even as the lot of the vinegar ones. It's, it's definitely one of, one of the worst films I've done. seen in probably the last three to four years. I can't, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can go back in this uh, show and I, there, there was one that I felt was similarly bad, um, but it's hard for me to come to that right now. I'm so, in what universe is, is it like a, is it a brilliant cathartic looking to a future of America where racism is history and and we all live happily ever after how how did he jump from the chaos of the beginning to the movie to this idyllic dream end by shooting up a room of people that was the only that's the that was the only narrative device that was employed to change that situation apart from the unconvincing romantic relationship and, it was bad. It's absolutely confusing. No spoiler alerts, but just the ending. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it was just like, how did that get resolved? Like, how did this happen? It's just jumped into. Now, now it's perfect. Now we've done it. We've solved. We've solved racism. Solved guys. it. Yeah, take it, take it off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if I can add to that. I can. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's, it's all right. So the final film we're going to review is uh, Brainwashed Sex Camera Power. Uh, Gary, you saw this film. Um, I saw it when it was at Berlin Alley um, and uh, we're considering possibly screening it as part of our doc program. But um, Gary, do you want to give us a little overview of the film? Uh, yes. So um, so it's a documentary directed by uh, Nina Menkes and it looks at the... Um, history of film and how uh, female characters are, are portrayed throughout film and it kind of joins the dots between um, employment discrimination and um, like exploitation of women and the objectification of women and it discusses that through in a kind of like a 
kind of like a, a TED talk structure with like some talking heads and some film clips. Um, and it kind of like charts right back from, I think the first film clips from 1896 through to, through to um, pretty recent ones like, uh, like Hustlers from like just a couple of years ago. Um, and it gets into like the um, technical aspects of it. So it's kind of like, kind of plays a bit like a, like a film theory, film criticism lecture in terms of like, it looks at composition and it looks at uh, lighting and um, it kind of like illustrates its points through small clips um, of films. And I, I found it interesting, especially when it got into like the, um, the technical aspects of it. Um, and there's some interesting points there on like, um, like slow motion. There's a section on slow motion where they're talking about like, if there's slow motion used for uh, a male character generally it's like a sports action sequ a sports sequence or like an action sequence and there's like the male character is like doing something whereas like a slow-mo sequence with a female character is like sexualizing the female character and um, objectifying them and it kind of like looks at that um lo looks at the juxtaposition between those uh two ideas um yeah, I, I liked it from a like educational and insightful and um like I think the the use of the clips ties in well with the points that it makes. I just I think that maybe it's a little like it's big on information and it's a little light on like analysis for me. Like I think it like it takes us on a like a whistle stop tour of like a lot a lot of clips and a lot of ideas. Um but I don't know whether it really answers any of the questions that it raises. Yeah, I think um, it's good to note that um, its basic thesis is uh, on a Laura Mulvey, really famous sort of uh, it, academic piece, uh, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which is really around this idea that uh, Laura uh, coined the male gaze. And yes. I think this film more than anything I have ever seen really kind of with all the clips as you mentioned uh brings that into more of a public screening kind of light and not and make you know it's not less of an academic thing and I I'm gonna probably keep myself I, I, I feel like I've been quite negative on almost all these films today and I'll, I'll be quite uh tame on any sort of uh critique on this in the in the aspect that I often don't like films that are TED Talks and, uh, you know, things like Inconvenient Truth and, and whatnot. While the subject matter of something like Inconvenient Truth is very informative and helpful and useful to learn, or especially at the time that it came out, the, the manner in which it was done or the term documentary, like, you know, we talked a lot around that sort of thing. So I, I would much prefer to see a Nina Menkes film. There's quite a lot of films that um, Nina's done that's that are incredible, you know? And I think bringing this conversation to light is very important. So it, it, it was something that we, we had thought about showing and would consider still showing to sort of create a whole conversation around with other films. And so I think bringing that, these subject matters up is useful. I do kind of agree with you that it's a very complex subject and it's very hard in a film like this to, to to discuss something that complex without simplifying it a bit too much. But 
in that same way, is that, is it still worth that coming out to a little, like bringing this up in a way that people maybe didn't think about. And I didn't even think about, like, I'm looking at Sofia Coppola's films, obviously female director, you know, but use, but Nina's using this in her talk to, you know, to very clearly describe the way women are presented, the way, you know, a, a cinematographer, you know, that's a male would, would film a woman versus others and how that's, that's just coded in everything we see. And it's really enlightening when you visually see it. And it's a little bit like, I would almost say like a Ted talk makes with like a video essay, you know, and, um, it's very useful, uh, you know, but yeah, top documentary, will it win, you know, best film ever, you know, made? No, probably not. Yeah. I think, I think it's important that, like you say, like it's, it kind of jumps off from the, um, from Laura Mulvey's piece on the male gaze and it kind of by, by contextualizing it in terms of like these film clips, it makes it, um, a lot more I don't know I think it like makes it more accessible by presenting it in this video essay type way and it is eye-opening um there's some uh, some moments where it's like the like the opening scenes of uh, Lost in Translation just to go back to like the mention of Sofia Coppola like kind of shows the how the patriarchy is like ingrained in cinema language and how yeah even though uh, there's like many great female filmmakers and there's more females making films today, like some of them, else, like the language is so ingrained in how characters might be introduced. So they've got like um, the way that Scarlett Johansson's character is introduced is just like her, like you don't see her face, all you see is like her, her bum and her legs. And then like it shows how like Bill Murray's character is introduced. And um, yeah, I think it definitely is, uh, um, eye-opening film and it really like um yeah it, it gets across its um yeah I think it's it makes it accessible by show, by using the examples that it uses definitely yeah um so the film is brainwashed sex camera and power and I believe if you're in the U.S. I think it's on CCM which and I know the BFI is um sharing it as well so I I don't know if it's on BFI player or or whatnot but um I don't think it's in cinemas in, in Edinburgh, but certainly probably some uh, documentary cinemas. I, th I think it might be, I think it might be in the cameo in Edinburgh. Oh, really? I don't know how long a run it's it's had, but uh, yeah, so I saw them posting about it this okay. weekend. So, yeah. All right, so, great. And selected UK cinemas as well. So select UK cinemas. Um, I know because BFI is having that run, and also, um, yeah, probably on on online as well. So uh, check the film out. It's very interesting, and uh, that wraps up our show this month. Um, so uh, there's a lot about to happen. Uh, cans upon us. So that means there's going to be it's a great deal of uh, films to look forward to over the next year or so as they get released. Anything that you all are looking forward to? There's a new Wes Anderson film. There's lots of West oh, yeah. coming out. Lots of two um, atomic based films that I'm looking forward to then. Interesting. <laughs> what's the what's the second atomic one? Um well I'm quite looking forward to Oppenheimer. So like a Christopher mm -hmm. just like settling back into the safe warmth of Christopher Nolan film. <laughs> um yeah, I'm I'm just really interested in uh, the chemist the chemist and physicist Robert J. Oppenheimer who is known as the father of the atomic bomb generally as a historic figure. Um, 
like a man who creates an atomic bomb watches it go off and then remarks he quotes the Bhagavad Gita and says now I've become death the destroyer of worlds <laughs> like I mean that's going to be an interesting bio biography and it's going to be an ensemble cast and Silly Murphy says it's the best script he's read so for what that's worth that's intriguing um but yeah uh, also War Pony um I'm really interested to see that so it follows the intertwining fates of again two two <laughs> male characters um but this time growing up on, I think, a South Dakota reservation. I think it's South Dakota. Um, yeah, and it's about money and love, and it looks really well made. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I've got a couple of film trips coming up the next the next two nights. So I'm going to see, there's a preview screening of Hypnotic tomorrow, which is Robert Rodriguez's new film. I think it's a bit of a throwback thriller starring Ben Affleck. So that's on tomorrow. And um, and then on Tuesday night, there's a preview of Ari Aster's new film with Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Bo is Afraid, which I've seen some um, very uh, divide, dividing opinions so far on that film. So I'm interested to, to see see what Ari Aster has done because his, his work's been pretty impressive so far with mm. uh, Hereditary and Midsummer. So that's the next. Yeah, I'll be I'll, sure I'll have um, some FOMO when seeing, seeing everyone it can this this upcoming week but i have seen that the weather forecast is supposed to rain all week so it'll be a perfect <laughs> uh, perfect cinema view and weather in, in the south of france is it raining in raining all week here or raining all week in france in france whoa yeah. oh, so like, my, my, that dulls my jealousy somewhat at least <laughs> Yeah. no I, it, not much it'll, <laughs> it'll <laughs> still i mean but also they're there to be indoors anyway i mean mm. uh so I'm sure it'll be a great, it, it seems like a very interesting um, bunch of films that are coming out. I'm sure certainly we will be reviewing some of those films in the next few uh, episodes that you mentioned as well. So um, look forward to that. And uh, I'm looking forward to uh, watching the films that we have on and outdoors, hopefully more sunny moments in the Northeast of Scotland than, um, than can. Uh, with the local hero 40th anniversary, uh, which local hero is very much favorite of many people. It's have, it has a very strong fandom and I've learned that as well. So yeah, we'll be meeting some of the crew and cast and we will be actually sharing that with on, on our YouTube as well, the, the event that we're running around that. Yeah. So join us if you can, sinescapes.co.uk. Gary and Clara, thanks so much for joining us today and let's see you soon. Yep. Thanks, Amanda. See you soon. Thank you. Bye. See ya.